Please rise in spirit or body for the gospel reading. Like Moses, Jesus also goes to the mountaintop, and the law of God has been made flesh and does not dwell on top of mountains. A reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them to the top of a very high mountain. He was transformed in front of them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. Peter reacted to all of this by saying to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you want, I'll make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I dearly love. I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. Hearing this, the disciples fell on their faces, filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anybody about the vision until the human one is raised from the dead. Glory to God. So in Mexican folklore, there is a monster that comes out at night. El Cucuy is what his name is. According to Mexican folklore, Cucuy comes out at night and scares children who do not want to go to sleep when they're told. La Llorona, also the crier, the weeper, another night snatcher of Mexican lore, is also on the lookout for children who do not go to, or care to turn in for the night. Both were blamed for odd creaks and rustling heard late at night. A flicker of a light bulb, cucuy. Or was it cucuy warning you while you tried to stay up sleep or reading late at night or playing your Game Boy under the sheets? It was either cucuy or La Llorona that was getting ready to snatch you up if you did not go to sleep. Were weighted blankets not a thing in the 90s? Like, were monsters the alternative for parents to make kids go to sleep? My parents would assume that they never used La Llorona or Cucuy on my brother and I. But if you were a kid who attended school and interacted with other kids, oh, you knew about La Llorona. You knew about the spooky sounds that Cucuy would make to make you go to sleep. Cucuy had you making an Olympic sport out of switching off the lights at night to get to your bed before he could snatch you. It was like the child's version of a high jump. Now, of course, this had me a little anxious. It was a wonder to my parents that I had some anxiety about the dark as a child and being in the dark and making things dark. If you've ever heard me talk about my mother's remedies and solutions for anxiety, it was to read a psalm or to drink a glass of water or if all else fails, do both. So, ever the faithful to her biblical solutions, she gave me a verse to repeat to myself for when I felt anxious. In the King James Version, of course, it was, for God has given me a spirit of, not of spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. I repeated this verse on the long walks from my light switch to my bed, before spelling tests, before those times multiplication exercises, during the two times it took me to get through the sandlot without covering my eyes when the beast would appear, on a plane rides, during thunderstorms. If you have not picked up yet, I was an anxious child. Not scared of my own shadow, anxious, but definitely suspicious of the shadow. And here's the thing, this description of me makes me sound like I was a shy and quiet and timid child. No, no. Despite my fear of almost everything, fear of talking out loud, blurting things out, and not thinking before speaking were not things that I feared. Fear of failing, fear of being too much, being too loud, not my thing. So you can see how I find a kindred spirit in my brother Paul. Can you? Smart-mouthed, quick to speak, quick to say yes and want to help, slowly realizing that as you sink into the deep end, that your zealous spirit might get you in a little over your head at times. And this story is no different. The scene is on top of a mountain. Jesus has taken his three closest disciples on a hike. They have no idea why. Maybe it is to teach them a little more clearly about what it means to be fishers of men. I know these men walked everywhere, but since that's what Jesus' preferred mode of transportation was, but a hike up a mountain in sandals must have been painful, but worth it to be with Jesus on a quiet mountaintop. Except what they get when they reach the top, sweaty, out of breath, and probably a little lightheaded, what they hoped might be a couple of days of quiet retreat turns into a hologram show of biblical proportions. Jesus, turns out, not only can turn water into wine, but he can literally turn into the color sparkle. He stands there shining bright like a diamond, no big deal. And if if that was not enough, it becomes a Talmudic band reunion. Because Moses and Elijah show up in their own Elton John level of shining glory and decide that now is a good time to talk to Jesus. Do you think the disciples were anxious at all while this took place? I have to think that maybe a little. I can imagine that it's not too far off from what the disciples felt with their time with Jesus. However dedicated they were to their calling to this human, I mean, they are human, right? And you try playing it cool after your mentor casts a legion of demons out of a person in need. It's hard to keep your cool in moments like that. And Peter, bless his heart, the rock of the church who a chapter earlier was compared to Satan is in awe and in confusion of what is happening around him. And so he speaks without thinking and suggests that maybe they build booths for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Peter The rock of the church in his shock and wonder doesn't know what's happening. And in that moment, it's not something to ignore. So it must be a pretty big moment, right? It's a moment that transcends any encounter that he has had thus far in his ministerial journey with his teacher. He's seeing Jesus in all of Jesus' glory. And his solution is to preserve it on this mountaintop. Let's stay here. We'll even build tents or statues dedicated to this moment. 
Now, 2,000 years later, removed from this story, it is easy to pity this man's statement. But in all honesty, who doesn't want to dwell in a safe space with the creator of creation, where both are met at a mountaintop in this fantastical, shining, glittery experience where it's safe? Where it's safe from opinions of other people, from deadlines, from taxes, from bills, from work, from school, from homework, complicated relationships, the pressure to have your life perfectly figured out because it seems like everyone around you does. You know, life things. While he's talking, what can only be described as a Morgan Freeman-esque voice straight up interrupts him and essentially tells Peter, no, that's what we're not going to do today. God has other ideas of what followers of Jesus ought to do. He says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. If you're keeping track, Matthew has this not-so-subtle way of comparing Jesus to Moses. For, Mo for Matthew, Moses and Jesus are the lawgivers and fulfillers for the people of God. One sets the law in stone in hopes of living a life of accountability and in service to God. The other comes from the earth to show us what service to God looks like. Both walk up a mountain to receive a word from God, and both rely on faith to guide their followers to a promise of liberation. On the mountaintop, Jesus meets the leaders of his faith, the heroes his parents told him stories about at night before they turned off their lights. These two, like Jesus, led misunderstood lives. Their callings were great and hard work. I like to think for that instant, Peter, James, and John aside, this was the comfort that Jesus needed. Yesterday in the Praying With Our Pens workshop, Carol Younger had us write an honest letter to God, beginning with a question that we've been too scared to ask out loud, so we would write it with our pens. And then Carol had us write God's response to us. The overall consensus was that God's answer was always hidden on our hearts. Grace and love ever present in the one who created us. I think Moses and Elijah showing up to talk to Jesus was God's letter back to Jesus. Because the Messiah knows, has known, that what awaits his journey back down the mountain is going to be a hard one. And I'm sure that he has his own fears and his worries, so God sends him his answer. You are my beloved. The liberating and good news of Jesus and the work of the gospel is not and never was founded on fear. It's not. The good news of Jesus' love for the world is a bright light. It's a light that was separated from darkness at the beginning of time by the creator. The same creator who breathed life into you and in me. It's a burning bush inviting you to recognize that the ground that you were on is holy. It is an oddly bright star guiding you to places you never thought you would go. And how will have you returning home by a completely different way. 
As the song says, it is a little light that can't be blown out, stomped out, or even let Satan blow it out. The light cannot be contained or hidden or set in a stone atop a high mountain. This ancient light that shines down upon us and in us is to be shared. The good news is that when the creator of the universe, the world without end, amen, amen, all powerful and divine came down and spoke from a cloud, the same divine presence that said, listen to my beloved, also came down in flesh and touched the scared disciples and said, get up. Don't be afraid. It's just me. They walk back down the mountain and with the Messiah, their teacher who has shown them so many astonishing things turns around and tells them, it's probably best that you keep this to yourself, what you just saw. Don't share it with anyone. Not yet. They had to make the journey to the cross first, a journey that we will also take. On Wednesday morning or evening, we will mark the start of our journey with dust, remembering our odd and astonishing beginnings as dirt and breath. During this season of Lent, we contemplate our humanity. We observe the realities of just how delicate our bodies are. And we ask ourselves during this season, what is it that hinders us from living out our true calling? For 40 days, we will abstain from using or doing the things that deter us from hearing God more clearly. And it's not easy to name the things and to let them go. Whatever it is that you will give up or take on for these next 40 days is a big and powerful strength. But see, Lent is not only about depravity and of scarcity. It is God asking us not to stay on the mountaintop, dwelling in a space of comfort. It is God asking us to take that bright and shining joy, that fantastical light, back down into the valley. And the good news for us is that just as Jesus put his hand on Peter's shoulder and said, get up, don't be afraid. Jesus walks that journey to the cross with us, cheering us on and in grace and in light. So do not fear the darkness, beloved. The ageless light of God shines in you and around you. So get up, walk in light, and do not be afraid. May it be so.